Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, February 27th, 2014. I'll be doing two things today. One I'm excited about, the other I'm actually kind of sad about. I'll explain shortly. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, open up our Bibles, and take a look at what God's Word really says. Now, from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith, I like to interview people. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I put it this way. I, I talk to myself a lot. That's what it feels like when you do radio. And uh, I enjoy actually having good conversations. And uh, recently we had uh, Curtis Lines on Fighting for the Faith. Curtis Lines is the assistant presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. That's the AALC. Uh, which is another good confessional uh, uh, Lutheran body here in the United States, although they're very tiny compared to the LCMS. I mean, I, th- I th- think the ALC has 66, 67 congregations total. So, I mean, tiny little group. Um, but th- th- there's some great pastors in the ALC, fantastic men. And uh, Curtis Lyons has uh, recently begun uh, blogging. And I I think the stuff that he puts out there is actually brilliant. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about his latest blog post entitled Temptation to Be Like God. And uh, what he's going after in this uh, blog post, and we're going to be discussing it, is kind of like the super faith or hyper faith movement. And, and, and you can read into that word of faith heresy, a lot of uh, the, uh, the the type of preaching that we get from a lot of megachurch pastors and the impact that it's having um, on, you know, not only here in America, but also uh, around the world. In fact, we talked about the impact and the really bad impact that this uh, theology has on people who are living in poverty. Poverty, Christians who are living in poverty in third world nations. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the whole first hour today. And then in hour number two, 
we're going to switch gears. And this is, you know, I, I got to say, this is a, a sermon review that I'm I'm saddened to have to do. Um, a few years ago, um, you know, one of the pers- pe- persons, uh, pastors that we reviewed semi-regularly here at Fighting for the Faith was a gentleman by the name of Gary Lamb. And he was the uh, the guy who planted a church in Canton, Georgia called Revolution Church. And uh, Gary Lamb was one of these guys who was, you know, kind of out there on the cutting edge with Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, and others in the Secret Driven Movement who were really running down, um, you know, people in in, uh, in traditional churches and stuff like that. And and uh, unfortunately, and sad sad to say this, um, he had a major moral failing. He uh, he was having an affair. I believe it was with uh, the, one of the church secretaries, and uh, he ended up getting a divorce and then marrying the gal that he was having the affair with. And you know he laid low for a few years, and then he planted another church in Georgia called Action Church. And um, at the time that Gary Lamb had had his moral failing, I mean, this is one of those things when um, when somebody has a moral failing like this, they need to hear the gospel. And so I actually reached out to Gary Lamb, and at that time, you know, told him about the you know Christ's forgiveness of sins, and and you know, and tried to be you know somewhat of a gospel encourager to him, if you would. And um, and of course now he's you know replanted another church, Action Church, and unfortunately, you know, his preaching has headed in a direction that um, is indicative of what he was doing in the old days. And um, the the name of the sermon we're going to be reviewing from Gary Lamb was preached just this past week, and uh, it's from his Revolution sermon series. Um, and it's the name of it is How to Deal with Critics, How to Deal with Critics. And unfortunately, th- what Gary Lamb says here and his assumptions and his twisting of Scripture uh, is all too common in the seeker-driven churches and shows that Gary Lamb still has a major theological problem, major theological problem. And so we'll be uh, taking a look at that in hour number two. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable, and uh, we're going to get right to it. And uh, it, here is uh, the uh, my interview recorded earlier with uh, Curtis Lines regarding his article that he recently published entitled Temptation to Be Like God. Here we go. All right, on the line I have Curtis Lines, who's the assistant presiding pastor pastor of the uh, American Association of Lutheran Churches. Uh, uh, pastor Lines, thanks for coming back on the uh, Fighting for the Faith radio program. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me. Okay, so your latest blog post is entitled Temptation to Be Like God. And I I, I love the blog post. I sent out links to it yesterday on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, we've gotten positive feedback. And uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, this uh, blog post of yours uh, uh, regarding the temptation to be like God, because there's some very important things that you say in here. But right out of the chute, you know, I can see you know somebody asking the question, "Well, wait a second. I mean, aren't we created in God's image? How is it a bad thing to be like God? Isn't that really kind of the whole goal of Christian sanctification? Are you saying you're opposed to us becoming more and more like God? Uh, it, you know." What would you say to somebody who would present that kind of a question to you uh, in response to what you wrote? I think that's a great question, and I also think it's a pretty normal question. There are a couple ways I'd like to get at an answer. The first, I think, I would like to talk about the the confrontation of the two Simons 
That is Simon Peter and Simon Magus in the Acts of the Apostles. In, in, um, let's see, uh, Acts 3 or thereabouts, uh, Simon Peter is, is at the temple, and there he sees a lame beggar. And the lame beggar is begging, and Simon looks at him and says, Silver and gold have I none. I, I don't have uh, precious commodities. You know, I'm not living high on the hog. In one sense, but in another sense, I have extraordinary riches. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Arise, take up your bed and walk. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is a sense of, of great humility and at the same time a sense of, of extraordinary gifting, you know, of, of extraordinary riches, right? Right. Now, several chapters later, about five chapters later, I think, in Acts 8, Simon meets another man whose name is Simon. He is a magician, and he has begun to watch Simon Peter minister Jesus Christ, proclaim the gospel of Christ, and, and watch as Christ manifests himself in uh, word and deed. And Simon the magician says, Give that authority to me. I want that too, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands uh, will get all the the goodies, uh, will receive the Holy Spirit. And the implication, or at least I'm I'm inferring from what Simon Magus says, then everyone will believe my claims, which mm-hmm. I've been making heretofore, that I am the great God. Mm-hmm. So, so if I do the stuff you do, uh, and the the emphasis here is. If I do the stuff that you do, then I am going to be called the great God. Hmm. Now, at that, Simon uh, Peter rebukes Simon Magus, and he says something like this, Your heart is not right with God. And I will pray the intention of your heart may be forgiven. Uh, you, are, you are standing in sin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's because, I think, there's something going on in your heart that is wrong. Uh, for Peter, his heart is now broken and remade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he has become friends with humility and poverty and, frankly, folly. Uh, all of the things uh, that are treasures of man that is the opposite, instead of humility, exaltation, Instead of poverty, wealth. Instead of foolishness, great wisdom. Uh, Peter's given all that up. He says, I'm not the source of those things, but Jesus Christ is. And so I'll be weak for the sake of Christ. And that's where, that's where real strength is going to be found. I'll be impoverished for the sake of Christ, and there I will know great riches. Uh, the things that are foolish to humanity, I will embrace. And in that process, I will understand the wisdom of God. Right. That, that, that paradigm shift is one that Simon Magus has not made. Mm-hmm. He's, still, he's still looking through the eyes of man wanting to be like God so that he would be worshipped. Right. Uh, yeah, so, okay, so that's kind of the, I guess how I would, I try to respond to someone who says, well, don't we all want to be like God? The bottom line is, if you hear what Christ is saying, he's inviting you to take up a cross right, and to die to yourself and to follow him. And in that regard, he's inviting you to be like himself. 
Right. And Jesus, it, who is God. And so much of popular preaching today, the emphasis on being like God is doesn't ha- it doesn't have anything to do with humbling yourself. It doesn't have anything to do with taking up a cross. It doesn't have anything to do with suffering. It has more. No. It more. It has a lot more to do with miraculous conquering victory, and uh, yes. which then puts the glory actually on the human being, the Christian, rather go. than on Christ. And I, I see this. You know, it, it, there's kind of an interesting de- way you develop your argument in your blog post. Um, and you know, you're talking about this being a, a, a false teaching, and there's there's kind of a, a a flow to the whole argument. You know, and it kind of goes like this: Jesus was hu- human, just like you and me. Jesus received the Holy Spirit when he was baptized, and you can be just like Jesus. Or actually, kind of the, the that's kind of the that's kind of the missing premise. It's not quite stated as 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 crassly as that. But then the next the next uh, premise in the argument, if you would, goes something to the effect. Of and Jesus said, "You're going to do greater things than him." And so, look, yeah. Jesus, he walked on water. Jesus, he raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. Yeah. He, he, you know, he set the captives free. So, look, you are going to go have some conquering messianic superpower filled, you know, save the world type of ministry. This is what Jesus is calling you to. And this is a very seductive teaching, and it on its on its face it looks like it's a biblical teaching. But you're actually arguing that it's not. What, what what's the major problem here? Aside from the fact that the emphasis is completely on the person. Well, that's obviously the 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 original temptation, the Genesis temptation that uh, Satan offers. You will be like God. If you eat the fruit of the forbidden tree, uh, you will be like God. You'll be, you will be gods. And in some contemporary literature, I've, I've read the quotation from the Psalms, you are gods, uh, taken out of context and touted. Yeah. Uh, as if it were ever a Hebraic understanding that human beings were to be in the place of God. Everyone understands who has any sense of, of Hebraic worship is that that's idolatry, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and and we are not key. Right. Now, isn't, um, this, isn't this the whole basis, then, of, of uh, the, what we in Lutheran circles call the difference between the theology of glory or self-glory and the theology of the cross? Isn't that really what, what you know, th- this is what defines that, you know, down in its core? Yeah, theology of the glory... Or theology of glory, and for for your listeners, uh, they may want to take a look at the Heidelberg Disputation, uh, where Luther uh, begins to unpack, coin and unpack those terms. Um, although, if you're not familiar with Lutheran theology, it might help to read a secondary source first. But uh, this theology of glory is built upon what persons expect God to be like, mm-hmm. and they expect God to be like themselves. Uh, we anthropomorphize. That, that is, we make God like us. And so we expect yeah. him to think like we do and to act like we do and to do like we do and to be like we are. Uh, and and if indeed we can create God in that image, that is, I'll make God in my image, sounds a bit upside down, uh, then I will have a theology of glory. And that says, I want to minimize my difficulties and minimize my sufferings because I want to be in control of them. 
Uh, surely uh, God doesn't want me to suffer, and surely God doesn't uh, want me to have difficulties. So uh, the difficulties are little roadblocks to be eliminated on the way to having the control of my life that I want. That's kind of the substance of the theology of glory is that life is great because I belong to God and, and God never wants me to suffer. Now, the theology of the cross is, uh, is really built uh, on a foundation in contradistinction to this. Uh, it's built upon not what I expect God to be, but what God has revealed himself to be. Mm-hmm. And God has, has made revelation of himself. The fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus Christ, most completely displayed on the throne of the cross. Mm-hmm. There, there is God revealed, Deus revelatus, God revealed, and though we can never see God in his full glory, he is still in some regard Deus uh, God hidden, Deus absconditus. Mm-hmm. So uh, we behold the face of God who doesn't seem to look like God, but is truly God in the crucified God. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we'll recognize him much more fully when he manifests his great glory uh, more, in a more understandable form in his resurrection and ascension. Uh, the point here is that God is displaying himself, is showing his hand in the moment of suffering, and now the, the Christian is called to a new paradigm. And this is what it, I believe is, is truly not being taught across the church today, especially in 21st century North America. Uh, that which was so much part and parcel of the apostolic faith. And it's said in James chapter 1, it's said in First Peter chapter 1, it's said in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Mm-hmm. See, that, that's the theology of the cross, because we know that in the sufferings, God is doing something that is glorious. I will rejoice in my weakness. Paul says that again and again, because in my weakness... He will show his strength. I'll recognize my foolishness, because in my inability to understand, he will teach me that which is his understanding. I'll rejoice even in the day of evil, knowing that God will work all things for good mm-hmm. for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. This, this is a radical paradigm shift to move from theology of glory that says, if you really have faith, everything's going to be great. And you'll never have sin, you'll never suffer, you'll never have sickness, which obviously is, not, is, is neither biblical nor true, right. uh, versus the theology of the cross, which says our God is overseeing everything that goes on in the world. And even, and perhaps especially in the moment of your suffering, he is increasing his glory by demonstrating his faith. And you will see it clearly in the moment of suffering. Now, I, I, I want to build on this idea that, you, that you've started working on here. The Book of Job is, I think, a book that a lot of folks, number one, don't know how to read, and number two, they probably couldn't relate to. Um, if their expectation is that God in this lifetime is going to normatively uh, reward the person with audacious faith with glory upon glory— you know, you look at somebody like Job who suffered immensely, 
And what I see, at, you know, for instance, in one of Job's comforters, uh, Eliphaz the Temanite. In fact, my wife actually has a, has a funny term for him. Uh, she calls him Eliphaz the Termite. Uh, because he, <laughs> he, he, she says his theology eats away at the at the wood of the cross, and he, oh wow, yeah, no, that is actually a, a a really good way of putting it. And so the idea is is that here you have one of Job's comforters literally teaching this theology of glory that listen, those who truly fear and, and are obedient to God, God doesn't punish. It's only the wicked who suffer. You know, and this is kind of his, uh, you know, what, what he talks about in in chapter fifteen of Job, and and what the, this theology is. I mean, when you read, you know, the theology of Job's comforters, it's clear that over and again you see the same bad theology being portrayed in really large right. churches and across the church today, and um, and the the challenge is is that. Their false theology is what's being believed by people today, and yet it's so clear when you understand the punchline of the book of Job that it wasn't because of his great sin that he lost everything. It was because of his great faith that was being tested that he lost everything. That, yeah, that's a mind-bender, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And, it's, it's so contrary to what's being preached uh, abroad uh, Especially now on the airwaves, on television, um, and uh, the popular uh, radio preachers and such, they're promising the easy life of comfort, yeah. the, um, the glory life, uh, if you're really faithful. Yeah, if, if there, and it, which then turns faith into some kind of a work or law, you know, that you've got to yes. keep. You know, so that, you know, it, it it's a weird way of talking because, you know, the, the old Roman system, you know, you, 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 know you, you merited God's favor by, you know, doing particular things. You know, so there were works that, you know, by going and, and you know, buying a, an indulgence or, you know, you know, saying a prayer at a particular relic or, you know, climbing on your knees up the, uh, the steps that supposedly Jesus had, you know, that led, led up to where Jesus was uh, put on trial that were supposedly in Rome. Home. You know, the, these were tangible things. You know, you know I, I did this, therefore I get that. But this this new way of thinking is is that you know I've got to somehow build up within myself the capacity for this great, huge faith, and that as God sees how my how I've increased and expanded my faith, faith, and I've demonstrated it through my audaciousness by going and doing something that's super risky or, you know, being bold or whatever, that God's going to turn around and say, ah, finally, I can bless that kid, you know, and, and, and the blessings inevitably are expected to be you know, something tangible in my life, like I, my marriage is going to, you know, the, the bumps in my marriage are, are going to smooth out. Things are going to get a little spicier in the bedroom. My kids are going to stop, uh, stop talking back and say, yes, sir. Um, you know, my, my boss is going to realize, oh man, that guy needs a promotion and a raise. And, and this is how, this is, and this is what is the expectation. And then along with that comes, you know, the material increase, the bigger house, the nicer car, um, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And that's not what is promised to Christians. And yet that's somehow now becoming the standard that if you're not getting that in your life, well, you don't have enough faith. 
you, you're, you, there's clearly something wrong with you because the, the, the indicator of whether or not you were really, really holy, really, really pious is that you know, tangibly thing, you, are, you are on the high end of the middle class or on the low end or <clears throat> in coming up of the higher class. And you know, everything is, is measured as far as kind of like how far along are you in achieving you know, a, a really, really good success rate at the American dream. But that's not what the Bible promises Christians at all. Exactly. The theology of glory says, I'm going, to, I'm going to make God in my own image. And the American dream is, what is it, uh, two cars in every garage and a chicken in every pot? Isn't that what the, the politician said 50 years ago? Yeah, well, um, it's got to be a golden chicken now or something, or a chicken that lays a, a right. golden egg, you know? So the American dream is health, wealth, and happiness. And so now the American dream religion is health, wealth, and happiness. Uh, you know, God on my terms. It is a recasting of the image of God. Yeah. Uh, it's no longer Christ. You know, a Christ tells us birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Uh, what did Jesus own? Uh, I, I imagine he owned the robe that they gambled for. Yeah. I'm not sure he had a whole lot more than that, to be honest with you. If we're looking at Jesus and saying, I want to be like Jesus, we're not talking about a lot of money or material well-being. And the other thing is, uh, if we're looking at Jesus, we're not talking about everybody turning and calling him Lord. Some people did that, but a, a great crowd of people called him blasphemer and uh, determined that they would murder him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't hear anybody saying, yeah, let me go be like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the real problem for me, um, it, I think, is the way I see this being lived out, not only in our country, but in other countries, in uh, South America and in Africa, when the prosperity gospel or the hyperfaith gospel gets to those countries, just to be real honest, you, you see little children, they're four years old, five years old, they're standing in the middle of a, a street of dirt holding uh, a baggie, that has unpotable water and a slice of something orange-green or yellow in it, as if it were now orange juice, lemonade, or limeade. They're, they're stalk, stalking every car that stops at the, um, at the hump that's in the road uh, when you come into their city. Mm-hmm. And they run up to the, um, to the window of the vehicle, and they say, uh, would you like to buy this, you know? Uh, that uh, they're they're begging for a penny because that's that's the the hope that their mama has yeah in many of those countries the the men are the disappeared the fathers grandfathers brothers husbands uh have been culled out and eliminated obviously that's another story but these folks don't have industry they don't have an economy that's functioning and uh, I, I see a, a thousand, twelve hundred people living in the margin of a railroad track, or some uninhabitable piece of land. In their distended bellies, they have amoeba from um, from the dysentery of unpotable water. And you tell them, whose prayer life is absolutely intimate, uh, as they pray the Our Father daily and moment by moment. 
as they pray to Christ moment by moment for their children and for the food that they pray they will have for the day. Mm-hmm. You tell them that they get health, wealth, and happiness, comfort, and uh, financial well-being uh, if they really believe. And if they don't have faith, it's, uh, that is, if they don't have those things, it's because they don't have faith. And that becomes a real problem for those folks. Yeah. They just don't understand that what they're being sold is something that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. And and I and as you've correctly pointed out, the the issue here is is that this other gospel turns a sinful human being into a little deity. And what yeah. I, what I notice about this theology is is that this is kind of a uh, a not very nice way of putting it, but somebody you know, uh, you know, on my Facebook wall had commented about the the people who preach this kind of gospel, and it's as if they've changed um, a portion of Scripture where the Apostle Paul says, "Follow me as I follow Christ." They've changed that to worship me as I worship Christ, and what they're doing is they're selling their system for achieving, uh, you know temporal success and uh you know things in this lifetime and they are the ones who always have to be the 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 number one person who is the is the example of the person that shows that this system works this this these steps that i've applied to my life they work look because my life demonstrates that this is this is a theology that works and gets results and uh, and and what they end up doing is dethroning Christ and and putting yeah. themselves as as lords over Christians. The expectation is that Christians are to to follow them in a way as if they're somehow a, a surrogate for the Messiah, but in a very twisted way. Yeah, I read one guy who who said, uh, "I'm almost to fifty percent in my miracles now." Wow, get that language. Uh, but I think I can do better. Get that language. I can do better. I, I can be. I can be more like sixty percent of my miracles. Wow. You know, where's where's his dependency upon Christ, and where's his his exaltation of the Lord who humbled Himself, uh, was, became obedient unto death, uh, and thereby opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, we've got a guy who's saying, either I can be like God. I can do what God does, missing the point, and I'd like to come back to, to what the Scripture actually says about miracles. Let me come back to that in a minute. But the point uh, that, that I'm hearing with all of this uh, I talk is I'm at 50%. I can get to 60%. I can, uh, I can be like God. Um, and, uh, of course, he's going to preach, and you can be like God's too, yep. uh, small g, plural, or or maybe capital G singular, uh, I, maybe it's interchangeable, I'm not sure. But if you, don't, if you don't get the results, it's very clear that this is a product of faith, and so you must be faithless. And that's what, as I travel uh, to other countries, that's the, the word that I hear is a pleading in, in the eyes and hearts of Christian men and women Pastor, uh, are we faithless because my my child is sick, or or is it my fault because my child is dead? Yeah. I mean, that's that's a real question has been said to me 
uh, is my child unloved? Is my child unforgiven? Is my child unsaved? Am I unloved? Am I unforgiven? Am I unsaved? Because uh, I have not earned God's forgiveness or God's salvation because I don't uh, produce enough, because I'm not enough like Jesus. And you see the terror and horror of this is that Jesus is no longer the Savior. I'm in the place of Christ. Yeah. And what, what is now at the center is, does my faith uh, demonstrate itself enough so that I earn the miracle and prove my place of uh, sonship? Yeah. Where, the, where the gospel of Christ says that he has died for us while we were helpless, while we were sinners, while we were God's enemies, Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. And that, that he has, as the author and finisher of our faith, he has given faith to us as a gift. And now because of the very faith that we've been given, we have been saved apart from works of the law, apart from anything that I could do to earn or merit my, my God's salvation. He has freely given it to me as a display, and this is incredible, as a display of his righteousness. He has displayed his righteousness by making us righteous right. by grace through faith. I mean, all the work is his. We, the, the recipients, have received grace upon grace. And the twisting of the gospel here is that we must now try to earn that which we are incapable of earning and then are held accountable because our lives aren't perfect or comfortable. It's very upsetting, especially when you, when you get out of the country and you get to folks who simply haven't, haven't heard the truth of the gospel, and what they've heard is this kind of twisting of the gifts of Christ right. uh, and, and, and the Christian life. Okay, we are going to pause my interview with Curtis Lyons right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. We come back to balance of my interview with Curtis Lyons regarding his article entitled Temptation to Be Like God. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. 
Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, if you're attending a church that's teaching you to exhibit hyper-faith in order to become like God, you're following a church that's preaching a false gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it all right here is the balance of my interview recorded earlier today with uh, curtis lines uh, regarding his article entitled temptation to be like god here we go so let me ask you, in, in, in that other theology, this, this, this hyper-faith theology of glory, wh- what's 
Jesus' function in that theology. So he becomes our example. It's very Pelagianism. Mm-hmm. They're very Pelagian. Uh, Pelagius, a British monk, came to Rome, uh, preached a very strong uh, word of, of uh, reformation and revival, returned to a Christian living. Nothing wrong with that. Good job. Um, and then people said, well, how can we do that? And, and what came forth was heresy, a denial of original sin, and uh, a preaching that we have within ourselves the ability uh, to, to be good, to choose good, that we can save ourselves. We don't have original sin. We can do what Jesus did, and we can be what Jesus was. In some very real sense, we're hearing that again, yeah. um, that, that because of, of what you are, and they may even use language like imago Dei, uh, because you're made in the image of God, or because you are gods, or because you're godlike. Uh, you can, and now we get to American, uh, American theology, you can pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, pick up your soul by your bootstraps, and you can present yourself to God. Yeah. I've done the good thing, I've become the good person, and so give me what I've earned. That's, that's very North American, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, I've earned it. Give me what... What I've earned. Uh, your word says that uh, that I'm gonna that who believes gets these things, and uh, I've chosen my faith and I've lived it out, and so give me what I deserve. Where the gospel of Christ is so different, I'm forever grateful for what I believe is a New Testament apostolic catechesis. That is, it's a catechism, it's a training to the neophyte. You find it across the New Testament, a recognition that to follow Christ, well, he says it first, is to take up a cross. It is to die to self. It is to expect suffering. It is to participate in Christ, which is to yield my will, to be taken uh, over, to be inspirated, to be inspired uh, by Christ, to be made the temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore to bear the fruit of the Spirit, because of the one in me, he gets the glory the whole way around. He's the one who gives the faith. He's the one who gives the spirit. He's the one who brings forth the fruit. Uh, so Paul says, how, how can I boast? I, I can't boast in myself. All I can boast in is Christ. That's the opposite of, I believe, of what is being heard not only in our country but in other countries and uh, and it's very troubling. Yeah, you know, it is very troubling. You know, one of one of the favorite passages of those who are into this hyper faith, be like God, you know, you know, little deity theology that you write about. One of their favorite verses is uh, Romans eight thirty seven that says, "We are more than conquerors uh, through Him who loved us." And what I find fascinating is is that. This is the verse that's thrown around by the football guys as they're in their huddle getting ready to you know, play the Super Bowl. We're more than conquerors. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And, and all of these you know, out-of-context slogans. But what I find interesting is that when you actually put that verse back in context, it, there you go. it provides the comfort to the, uh, the orphaned and the poor and the, the, the desperately... Uh, desperately trapped and locked in poverty, uh, folks that you talk about in other countries. Because here's what it says. Paul, you know, talking about real Christianity, he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Amen. And here's what he says. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness 
or danger or sword. For it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so the, the idea here is this, is that to that poor mother, you know, who's, who can't feed her kids and yet prays uh, daily for Christ to give her that daily bread and her child has died of sickness and disease or, or uh, you know, other, you know, things that go yes. along with poverty. She's asking these questions. Am, am I not saved? Do I not have enough faith? And yet here, this text, this text actually is against the hyper-faith people because it says that the tribulation, the distress, the famine, the nakedness, we can't be separated from the love of Christ by these things, and they are not indicative of his love for us. He loves us even as we suffer through those things, and that we are, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so it's so sad that, you know, this other religion, this other gospel, this be like God gospel, you know, with this hyper faith thing, they take, yeah, they take you get the, the glory. Yeah, you get the glory. But the very things that they despise, the very things that they loathe, the very things that they would see as something as as God punishing them for not having enough faith. Famine, nakedness, sword, persecution, tribulation. They, their, their, mm-hmm. their theology, their, their faith would come crumbling down should they experience anything like that. It's those things that it says the love of Christ is what gets us through that because we conquer all of those things through him and they cannot separate us from the love of God. They are not, in, they are not indicators Amen. as to whether or not God loves us or Christ has forgiven us. They are not. We, are, we conquer through them. And he's the one who's done it anyway. And so their their theology misses the whole point. And so they they they, they take that verse, Romans eight thirty seven, out of context and turn it into a slogan for their twisted, self centered, you know, ultimately, you know, you know, they're trying to make themselves into deities theology, which basically puts them back at square one, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. Not realizing yep. that they themselves yep. spiritually are not rich, they're poor, they're naked, they're distressed, and they really <laughs> need to be clothed by Christ because they're parading around their self-righteousness as if it's the greatest clothing of all time. And yet they, they are beaten and naked and don't even see the desti- how destitute they are for real. Yeah, you, you just took me back to the, the letters in Revelation. That was great. That was really nicely done. Forty years ago, I entered Lutheran Seminary. When, uh, when I completed my Master of Divinity program and was ordained, I went to uh, a rural parish in North Carolina. And in the first less than 18 months, I buried more than 18 people. Mm-hmm. I was 25 when I was ordained. Frankly, I didn't have any, I didn't have any knowledge of anything. I mean, I, I knew a lot uh, of... Um, uh, systematic theology, uh, uh, hermeneutical interpretation, uh, those kinds of things. But immediately that I arrived at the parsonage, there was a phone call. There was a, a death in the congregation. And that seemed to happen again and again and again over the weeks and months that followed. I, I found myself holding the hand of, of a man waiting to die, of an old lady waiting to die, or just getting to the house uh, immediately after a wife or husband had passed away. And, uh, you know, at 25, I, 
I hadn't experienced much sickness, much less death in my family. Uh, suddenly, I was face-to-face -face with Christian faith, the likes of which I'd never seen in my life. I watched people prepare to die and held their hands as they did so. I watched family members face the, the grief of death and understood we grieve not as the world grieves. Uh, I, I understood, well, the rest of, of the passage you just quoted, uh, the next verse um, is in the Lutheran funeral service. Uh, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, uh, that neither death nor life, whether, whether she lives or whether she dies, whether she dies tonight or, or whether she lives another year, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. I'll come back to that and talk about the power of, of uh, shaman, uh, of brujaria, and uh, occultism in other countries. Of uh, death nor life, angels, principalities, and powers. The heights nor depths, that is the great, uh, wonderful things of life, nor the sorrows of life, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that's, that was so demonstrated to me, not in a class of theology or, or in a, even in a wonderful book, but, but face to face, that nothing was able to separate the people of God from the Savior who loved them. And, and that's what I began to see. That is indeed the reality of Christianity in, in the margin. Uh, the people who live a subsistence living. I remember visiting folks uh, who welcomed me and gave me a plate of food as uh, a thousand people watched me eat a plate of food that would feed a family for three days. And, and because the Lutheran bishop had sent them bags of rice, they watched me eat and asked me to pray for them and rejoiced because uh, a, a, a clergyman, a pastor, was among them to preach and celebrate Holy Communion and pray for them. Mm. They knew the truth of the love of God in Jesus Christ uh, at a depth at which I did not know it. You know, I went as a, as a visitor who was the North American educated pastor. What I found was that I had entered a land of faith and the education was given to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Let me ask you a, a theological question. Because I sure. think I think based on what you just told me, I think you could you could do a good job of exegeting this passage then based on what you've seen. Jesus says, "He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do." What does that mean? And tell me then about the great works that those people of subsistence living are able to do that are greater than Jesus did. The, the point of, of all of those passages is the gift of Christ in us, is what he does in us, which, which is a great thing. It's an incredible thing that we uh, would live in faith, that we would care for each other, that we would sacrifice for one another, uh, that we would share what we have, that we would love and forgive, uh, that we would do any of those things that are demonstrative of the life of Christ in us. 
Uh, it's one thing to see it in the God-man Jesus. It's quite something else to see it in the human being uh, who sits next to me in the pew or who lives next door to me in the hut or in the, in the blue plastic hovel. When, when he who has nothing shares with me a plate of food that would feed his children and his family for, for three days, he has literally one corrugated piece of aluminum and one piece of blue plastic, and that is his house. The plastic is the ceiling, the roof, and one wall, and the corrugated aluminum is the other wall. His house is six feet wide and five feet deep. Hmm. And when he, when he shares what he has, it is an act of such self-giving that it only can be recognized as the work of God in him. Yep. And, and he'll name the name of Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and frankly, as his only hope day to day for food. One of the things that struck me about what you said is is that you had much to learn from them, and yet you, you were the one who uh, went there with the, with the degree in theology, and yet they were the ones who taught you. And I think we in our American, Western, North American arrogance seem to think that we have everything to offer the world, but the world doesn't have anything to offer us, and it, it would be wise for us to humble ourselves and to learn from our poor destitute, suffering brethren around the world. Yeah, I agree. Uh, when we uh, gringos go to uh, Central and South America, for example, uh, by and large, they defer to us. When, uh, when we go to Africa, the folk there put their hands together before them, bow their heads, and, and call us Baba. Daddy, father, it's a very colonial kind of thing, a deferring and honoring. But what they're saying is, uh, well, you're from the West. Well, uh, you have money. You have possessions. You have things we don't have. Uh, you have medicine. So surely your theology must be better because everything else about your life is better. Uh, and I, I, I have come to learn that uh, though they may not have, have received theological training, they have received one training that many of us have not received, and that is to trust in God. Yeah. We, we are still working on trusting on ourselves, you know? Yeah. They've been brought to a point where they have such great faith because God in his mercy has stripped them of their ability to trust in anything else. <laughs> you know? Well, that, you know, if, if you can think a moment, how do you teach someone to have faith. Uh, we learn faith. Well, that's, that's why rejoice in your sufferings, uh, because uh, suffering produces patience. Poor translation for the word hupomeno, uh, to remain under. Uh, suffering produces the power to remain under. Yeah. Imagine remaining under the sword, remaining under the, the maw of the lion, or simply remaining under poverty, or remaining under chronic pain. Uh, suffering produces the ability to remain under, and, and the ability to remain under produces character, and the ability to, 
to remain under producing character produces hope. And that hope will not disappoint us. Right. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, so says Paul in Romans 5. Uh, how do you teach one hope? How do you teach one faith? It seems to me, uh, and I admit this is a bit anthropomorphic, but I, I do think it is borne out in Scripture, that our Heavenly Father is much less concerned about my comfort than I am, and much more concerned about the quality of my faith and trust in Him than I am. Uh, he has a whole different set of uh, priorities. I want to know, when is the trouble going to be over? And I think he wants to know, when are you going to learn to trust in me? Right. Oh, ye of little faith. Yeah, that's right. It's absolutely right. I remember, um, you know, I served a, a congregation in San Juan Capistrano for a, a, a bit of time. And there was an you know, older gal in, in the class that I taught, and she had taken ill, and she found herself in the hospital and went to go visit her in the hospital. And she was just kind of beside herself with the situation because, you know, she was a person who prided herself on on helping others, and, and she felt useless. She absolutely yes. felt useless having right. in her condition to not even be able to get out of bed. It was just terrible. And, and in you know, first question from her was, you know, why is God doing this to me? What have I done wrong? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, right. and, and my immediate question back was, why would you assume that you've done something wrong? She's all, but I can't do anything. And I said, no, you can do something. Your vocation has changed. You are no longer the caregiver. You are the one being cared for, which gives then your neighbor the ability to serve you in their vocation. So you have a new vocation, and that is the one who's to be cared for. And it helped her. But, um, you know, so many times we judge God's favor based upon our circumstances, not seeing that when our circumstances change, just like Job, just like Job, that's no indicator of God's love for us. God didn't love Job any less while he was being tempted. And it was because of God's great love for Job that Job was tested the way that he was. And, Mm. and, you know, I'm so thankful for that book, The Older That I Get, because... I Amen. I found that this life throws some pretty wicked curveballs at you. And if your faith says that my success, my comfort are the indicators of God's love and his favor towards me, then your faith will come wow. when then your faith will come crumbling down when life when life does what life does. It it you know, it, this we we live in a cursed creation. And so um you know, it's it's wonderful to have a faith in a crucified Savior who demonstrates his power in his weakness and ultimately his glory. His glory here was, as you put it, his throne, which was his cross, you know. And so, you know, we serve the crucified God, the suffering God, the God who was tempted in every way that we are tempted and understands our weakness and actually intercedes on our behalf and has taught us in his word to not look at our circumstances but to continue to look to him because nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. Nothing. Well, that'll preach. That was good. I mean, I'm really encouraged. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, as long as you live in this world, you'll have trouble. 
but I have overcome the world, says Christ. Right. So everyone who listens to our conversation today in some way will be able to identify with suffering and the difficulty of this world and will need to hear again the promise of the faithfulness and ever-enduring love of Jesus Christ. Right. Yep. And the nice thing about learning to not be tempted to be like God in this sense makes it so that there is truly a God there to comfort me and strengthen Mm. me and support me and pull me through even the most difficult circumstances of life because ultimately we're sojourners here. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're the mist. We, you know, we're here today. We're gone tomorrow. You know, don't get too comfortable with what's here because none of it's going to last anyway. There's a new kingdom coming. I I looked at the back of the book and uh, there's a new heavens and new earth and and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And God's going to make his dwelling place among us eventually, but not now, not in this curse. He's going to lift the curse. The sons of God are going to be revealed and it's going to be a glorious day. But until then, we have a cross to carry. Amen. Well said, sir. Well, Pastor Lyons, thank you for coming back on Fighting for the Faith. I enjoyed the conversation, and I hope that uh, those listening also were edified and comforted and maybe challenged by the things that we discussed. Thanks, Chris. God bless you. All right, you too. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, sermon review from Action Church and uh, Gary Lamb about how to deal with critics. It's not a good sermon. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. 
Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. Unfortunately, the rhetoric that we're going to hear and the Bible twisting that we're going to hear from Gary Lamb is one of the hallmarks, historically, of the entire seeker-driven movement and uh, what they teach their visionary leaders to do and say. It's very cult-like. Yeah. But let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Action Church, Canton, Georgia. Gary Lamb presiding. This is from his Revolution Sermon Series, and the name of the sermon is How to Deal with Critics. Yeah. And unfortunately, this sermon demonstrates that... um, you know, Gary Lamb is pretty much back where he started, and um, it's it's actually tragic. He doesn't see that his presuppositions, theological, are are the problem, and so he really thinks he's out there making a big difference for the kingdom of God. And really, what he's doing is twisting God's word and teaching false doctrine, and. Well, teaching people to look to him really more than to look to Christ. I know that sounds like a big charge, a big claim, but I think that'll bear itself out as we uh, listen to this particular sermon. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Gary Lamb and his sermon entitled, How to Deal with the Critics. Here we go. Good morning. Last week of our series called Revolution. I've enjoyed this series. It's been a fun series. I'm really excited about our next series. This is just kind of a series I call, I, I have two different titles for what I call series. I call them Outsider Series and Insider Series. It was kind of an Insider Series. We wanted to talk to our church family and make sure we were all on the same page, that we understood where we were headed and what God was doing around here. And In other words, this is kind of a vision casting, recasting vision type of sermon series which is what the seeker-driven leaders are taught to do. We've been talking about the fact that God has called us to be part of something bigger than ourselves, that God has called us to be part of a revolution to spread the message of Jesus Christ here in our community. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I don't like the revolution talk. Jesus' message, the gospel itself, is very revolutionary. And we as Christians are called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. That includes our own. I don't have a problem with that. And it's unlike any other revolution. It's a love revolution. It's a revolution of second chances. 
It's a revolution that tells people no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how much you've given up on yourself, that God loves you, that he sent his son for you, he died on a cross for you, he conquered death for you, where you can experience eternal life, and where God has a plan for your life, and God has a purpose for your life. Now, I'm going to stop right there, okay? Um, there's a little bit of a problem theologically. It's, it's, listen, the gospel is so much better news than God is giving you a second chance. In fact, telling people that God is a God of second chances really isn't good news. Here's the reason why. The reason why it's not good news is because second chance implies that it's still your responsibility to get it right the second time. You know, it, it, Jesus isn't giving us a do-over. That's not the gospel message. If that were the case, then we're all in trouble because if Jesus gave us a do-over, we're going to mess up. If he gave us another do-over after that, a third chance, we're still going to mess up. If he gave us four chances, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, none of us would still be saved. Because God's law demands perfect obedience, and none of us, none of us meets that standard. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that he's giving us a second chance. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he has literally suffered on the cross and paid the penalty for every one of our sins. From the sin that we had in ourselves as a result of being conceived uh, as descendants of Adam and Eve. That's right. Adam and Eve's sin is imputed to each and every one of us. Okay, To the last sin that we commit, commit as we take our dying breath, where we do not love God with all of our heart, Christ died for all of it. All of it. Okay, And so our slate is washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And we stand before God as forgiven, pardoned, and declared to be righteous all for the sake of Christ. We are now set free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil. It's not a second chance. It's a complete and full pardon for rebel sinners. And so this is my issue here already at the beginning is, is that the way he's describing the gospel as a second chance, and it's true that Christ loves us, that God loves us. But the thing is, is the way he's describing that love is not biblically accurate and shows that there is a problem in his theology. We continue. And it's a revolution that has a message that people need to hear. And here's the deal. I'm done. We can talk about it all day long. I can get up and rah, rah, rah you all day long. We can get excited about it and we can get pumped up about it. But at the end of the day, you've got to take what we've heard and you've got to put it into action. There should be no fuzziness about where we're headed as a church. you got to take what you've heard and put it into action. In other words, he's casting vision. He's the visionary leader who's received a vision from God. Same as Stephen Furtick. Same as Perry Noble. Same as Rick Warren. Same as all of the visionary leaders. And... Their job is to take the vision that he's cast and then to put it into action in order to make it appear, make it happen. Yeah, this, by the way, nowhere in the scripture does it say the pastors are to receive an individual vision from God that they are to cast to people in their church and then the church must follow them. This 
method, this thing that he's doing, itself is sinful and contrary to God's word. No church, not one, has a unique individual vision or mission that it's supposed to be accomplishing. All churches have the same mission and vision, and that was cast by Christ. Uh, you know, it, Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching. That's right. And you know, take then Luke t- uh, chapter 24, where he says uh, to uh, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. So already we, you know, we're only a minute and 34 seconds into the sermon. And the theology of this thing is very bad. A, a weird twist on the gospel with the addition of, oh, and God has a purpose for your life kind of thing here. Uh, the purpose-driven clause that is attached to the seeker-driven uh, preaching of the gospel doesn't exist in Scripture. Okay, And what they're doing with it is wrong. Um, and then this, uh, the whole presupposition that the pastor has a vision from God that he has to cast so that everybody gets busy behind the vision. This is um, – I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to just say, say it straight up. This is demonic. This is not the ecclesiology revealed in Scripture. This is not a, a part of the office of pastor. The pastoral office is an office, and it does not include the duty to receive a vision from God and then cast a vision from God and then re- expect people to get behind the vision. It's nowhere taught in Scripture. In fact, this makes, uh, well, uh, Gary Lamb you know, a, a prophet. And to challenge the vision, to question the vision, is to challenge God himself because Gary Lamb is claiming none other that God is the one who put this on his heart, you know, this vision that he's casting. And you're going to hear him say that in just a second. But we continue. There should be no questions about where we're headed as a church. It it should be very clear what it's going to take for us as a church to be the church that God's called us to be. I've talked to you about the sacrifice Notice it's the church that God has called us to be, and he's talking about his unique vision, not some thing that is applicable to every church, just action church. That it's going to take. I've talked to you about the mindset that it's going to take. I've talked to you about the focus that it's going to take. I've talked to you about very detailed ways that we're going to go about implementing the vision that God's called us to do. But I'd be lying to you today if I didn't tell you I left one thing off. There's one part of starting revolutions that nobody thinks about when they get excited about a revolution. When they're talking about making change and making the world a better place, and when they see something that could be made better, they think about everything but this thing. And many times this is the thing that stops revolutions from being fulfilled. Here's what you need to understand today as we move forward as a church. Anytime there's revolution, there'll be opposition. Are you awake today? Somebody just say amen. Yeah, and by the way, every seeker-driven conference, leadership uh, transitioning seminar, they always talk about this. Um, so I don't know what you're talking about, uh, Gary. I mean, I got Dan Sutherland, I got audio of Dan Sutherland preparing people as he's transitioning them from being a traditional church to a purpose-driven church, warning them about the critics. 
So um, this claim of yours that nobody seems to talk about this or think about it is flat out wrong. This is all straight out of the purpose-driven playbook. And by the way, uh, Gary, the reason why you have opposition is because you twist God's word. And because what this, what you're doing here, this whole vision casting thing, nowhere is this taught in Scripture. In fact, the whole model for your church and the whole presuppositions that you are running on, none of it is biblical. We continue. Because you seem really dead. I know it's sunny outside, and man, you chilled out all day. A lot of you had too much to drink yesterday. You're just chilled out a little bit. But wake up on me today, okay? I need your help. I'm here on an island by myself today. I feel like crap. So you ain't man even if it's not good today. How about that? Anyway, hallelujah. Woo, that's good preaching. Anytime there's revolution, there's opposition. Anytime there's revolution... There will be, you can take it to the bank, there will be critics to the revolution. People hate what they don't understand. People hate change. Yeah, actually, the reason why I'm opposed to the seeker-driven movement is because I understand it. And I understand it's false theology, it's Bible twisting, it's false gospel, it's false ecclesiology. That's the reason why I oppose it, because it's damaging people, hurting them, sending people to hell at the same time. People despise when you go against the way things have always been done. People hate when things don't look like they think they ought to look. People hate when things don't act the way they think they ought to act. So what they do is, is they come along and they... You know, it's not as if we don't actually have biblical passages that tell us how the church is supposed to be organized, what the role of the pastor is, what the duties of his office are, um, what is expected from a pastor as far as his moral character and his preaching and teaching. We have very clear passages on that. The reason why the seeker-driven movement has critics is because their pastors, many of them, are not qualified to be pastors according to the biblical standard. The model that they've they've put into the church is not a biblical model, um, and what these guys these guys don't represent at all the the Bible correctly, and they they so. From a moral character standpoint, they're not qualified. From a sound doctrine uh, standpoint, they're not qualified. From an ecclesiastical model uh, standpoint, this model doesn't exist. They're not qualified. That's why they have critics. They criticize what they don't understand instead of trying to understand what they don't understand. It's easy to tear something down. Anybody can tear stuff down. I can't build anything, but I can tear some stuff up. So what they do is they come along and they see something different. They see something that doesn't look the way they think it ought to look. They see something that's making a difference, but it doesn't make a difference in the way they think it ought to make a difference. So instead of being on board, they criticize. Yeah, Jesus told us to make disciples, not make a difference. Criticize. As we move forward as a church, you need to understand something today. There will be opposition to the vision God's given us. There will be critics to the vision God's given us. And this is a cult mentality. 
absolutely a cult mentality. He's trying to inoculate them against the very valid biblical criticisms that they're going to be receiving regarding their vision. But of course, we have this, we're going to unite around the visionary. We're going to unite under the leader and we will support our unity and defend the vision that God has given us. This is a cult mentality, straight up. And this is what the seeker-driven movement fosters. And sadly, um, well, Gary Lamb is back where he was before he fell morally. You would think people would stand up and cheer. You think people would be excited that lives are being changed. You think people would would be excited that those without clothes are being clothed and those without food are being fed and those without a warm place to stay are giving shelter. You, you would think people would be excited that those that are, have hurts, habits, and hang-ups are getting recovery from their addictions, but there will be criticism when it comes along. They will criticize your methods. They'll criticize the vision. They'll criticize the pastor. They'll criticize you for attending here. They'll tell you that you belong to a cult. You ever heard that? Uh, and I would agree. If th- I mean, this is a cult mentality that we're hearing from Gary Lamb. Maybe the reason why people are saying that's a cult is because they're a cult. This is a visionary leader casting vision and trying to inoculate people against criticism. And yet here's the thing. Criticism comes in many different varieties. There's valid criticism and there's invalid criticism. There's valid there's criticism that is substantive and biblical, and then there's criticism that's just vitriolic and ad hominem. Okay? Criticism doesn't it's not a one size fits all thing. I get a lot of criticism on a daily basis uh, for the work that I do at Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. And the reality is this is I take it all in. And what I've noticed is, is that sometimes what people criticize me for is valid. And that requires me to change course or make some alterations in what I do. Sometimes the criticism I receive is just over-the-top, ad hominem, just vitriolic nonsense. And with that, I just, well, okay, I've heard your criticism and I move along. I ignore it. There's, There's nothing to be done in a case like that. Sometimes I'll try to respond and reason with the person, and sometimes they can be reasoned with and sometimes they can't. But criticism is not in and of itself something that's terrible or bad. It can actually be a good thing. Um, you know, there, we all work together. We all live together. And sometimes, you know, just play it. I don't have a problem saying it. Sometimes I'm sinful, you know, in what I do. And so I've got to repent and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. So the question that should be asked of Gary Lamb is, why is it that you lump all criticism into the same bucket? Why is it that you don't make any distinction between good, valid criticism as opposed to bad criticism? And why do you think people would call you a cult? Don't you think that should be a red flag? Wait a second. Why would anybody call us a cult? We're not a cult. If they weren't a cult or acting like a cult, then why would people be saying they're acting like a cult or they're warning people that they're cult-like? But what I'm hearing from Gary Lamb is exactly the same kind of stuff I hear from Stephen Furtick, from Perry Noble. And I would say that Stephen Furtick has definitely crossed the line into cult leader. That's, that's my assessment of him at this point. Flat out, straight up cult leader. Perry Noble, the same. And 
well, Gary Lamb is well on his way here. He's laying the same foundation that leads to the same thing, and he's got more, and I mean this. He is more mentally and morally screwed up than any of them combined, and or all of them combined. And so, I mean, this is a formula for a major, major train wreck. We continue. You belong to a cult. They'll do whatever they can to minimize or explain away what God is doing. Um, you haven't received a vision from God. You twist God's word. Why should I believe God is doing something through you? It's unavoidable. You can try all day long to avoid it, but you can't do it. Matter of fact, I would dare say if you have no critics, you're really not creating a revolution. If everybody's excited about what you're doing, what you're doing is probably too safe. So as we move forward, we've got to realize, and this is an important mindset to have, that there will be critics. There's nothing you can do about it. We can't control the critics. We can't dictate what they do. We can't avoid the critics, but here's what we can do. We can be responsible for how we respond to the critics. Dare I say that how we respond to criticism will actually determine the impact we have on our community. How we respond to criticism and the criticism's there. And if it ain't there and you haven't heard it, just open up your ears, it's coming. How we respond to criticism will determine how we impact our community. There's a great story in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Those of you who don't know, Nehemiah is a great book. You ought to go read it. It's probably one of my favorite books in the Bible. If you've been here long, you've seen me preach from it. You've heard me preach from it. But Now, notice uh, he's going to Nehemiah. Nehemiah does not teach vision casting. We covered this in the last sermon review we did on Tuesday. And what happens is, is that seeker-driven leaders are taught to use Nehemiah to eisegete things into that passage that are not there. Again, Nehemiah is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text, and yet these guys are taught by the network to use Nehemiah as the biblical foundation for vision casting and everything they do, and also for the model on how to deal with critics. And yet that's not what that book is about. To sum it up real quick, is Nehemiah, he's returned to his hometown of Jerusalem. God had given him a vision to rebuild the walls around the city. This city was once a thriving city. It was once a um, city of surplus. It was once a city of industry. And the walls had been broken down, and now the city laid in ruin. And the key to any city back in those days, all was about the walls. The walls around the city provided protection. They, they determined who came in the city and who went out of the city. The walls around the city allowed the city to defend itself. When it was being attacked. And Jerusalem had had the walls tore down by its enemies. And now literally was in poverty. It was literally a shell of what it used to be. And God began to stir in Nehemiah's heart. And give him a vision. To go back to his hometown. And rebuild the walls. This was huge. The people were pumped up when Nehemiah showed up. They were excited when Nehemiah showed up. Nehemiah rallied the troops. He had the king's blessing. To rebuild the wall. And people were excited about it. A revolution was starting. And things were changing. As the walls were being rebuilt. Industry was coming back in. There was people coming in out. People were buzzing about the city. 
as the walls were rebuilt. What should have been a great thing that nobody could have criticized was happening. Yet right in the middle of the walls being rebuilt, right in the middle of bringing vitality and life to something that was dead, the critics show up. Right when the revolution started in Jerusalem, there was opposition. And that's something you need to understand. There will always be critics. The Bible says in Nehemiah 4, verse 1, when Samballot heard that they were rebuilding the wall. Now, here's the standard line, okay? So you oppose the vision of a seeker-driven leader. You are a sandbullet. You are opposing a man who's received a vision from God. You are a sandbullet. This is how they belittle people. And now what he's doing here is creating this culture then that if anybody says, listen, Gary Lamb has not received a vision from God. He's, he's off his rocker. He is a, a guy who twists God's word. He's not morally qualified to be a pastor. He's not even biblically qualified to be a pastor because he doesn't rightly handle God's word because God's word requires that pastors study, show themselves approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly handle the word of truth. This is what God's word requires of pastors. He hasn't met that qualification. And what is he doing here? He's twisting the story of Nehemiah in order to basically inoculate people against critics. And now they've got this go-to argument. Oh, you're just a sandbullet. The Bible doesn't teach us to do this with critics. We continue. He became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. Critics will always ridicule. They'll always make fun. They love to tear down. They love to mock. And in the presence of his associates, and they'll always do it with a crowd. They'll never come to you. They'll do it with their crowd, their minions around them. His associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Meaning, will they get to worship their God again? Will they finish in a day? Can they really bring stones back to life from these heaps of rubble buried as they are? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, so first of all, Sam Ballot, now Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side said, what are they rebuilding? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down the wall of stones. I, I mean, you think people would be excited the walls were being rebuilt. You think people would be pumped up that this city is being revived. You would think people would be jacked out of their minds that the city was returning to its former glory. You think people would be pumped up that the king had given his blessing for the walls to be rebuilt. But here came the critics. There will always be critics. No matter how good the cause, there'll always be critics. No matter how good the vision, there'll always be critics. No matter how strong the mission, no matter how... Yeah, Gary, again, you haven't received a vision from God. You're deceived if you believe you have. You haven't. You're not qualified to be a pastor. And this is just reality. This is biblical truth. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that pastors are to receive an individual unique vision from God that they're to cast to their people and that everybody's supposed to get busy behind it and make it happen. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach this. And if you disagree with me, show me where in the Bible does it say that pastors are supposed to receive visions and the job of the, of the people is to get busy making those visions a reality. 
There isn't a single passage in the book of Nehemiah actually doesn't teach this. You're inserting things into the book of Nehemiah that are not there, proving that you're not qualified to actually be a pastor. You're acting like a cult leader. Strong the purpose, there will always be critics. You will never get rid of the critics. This isn't a message today on telling you how to get rid of the critics. But it is a message today on how we as a church respond to the critics. Because here's the problem with critics, what I see so many times. is so many times people are doing what God's called them to do. And the critics come along and they do one of two things. Uh, God hasn't called you to do what you're doing there right there, uh, Gary. Show me again in the Bible where it says that pastors are called to receive a vision and cast a vision. The passage doesn't exist. They allow the critics to shut them down. Or they allow the critics to consume them. And they take their focus off the vision and place it on the critics. I did that for years. For years I lost sight of what God had called me to do where I could answer to the critics. <coughs> Listen, at Action Church, at any church, but especially a church like Action Church, there will always be critics. A church like Action Church will actually get critics from both sides, where many churches will not get that. We'll get critics from those that don't go to church, that just don't like church. And then we'll get criticism from those who do attend church and just don't understand what we do here. They're used to the way things... Again, I understand exactly what's going on in Action Church. I am a careful student and expert of the whole seeker-driven, purpose-driven church model, have been for a long time. So I'm not somebody who's ignorant of what's going on with Action Church. I know exactly what's going on with Action Church and why it's biblically incorrect. I've always been. They're used to the traditions and the denominationalism and the way they've been taught by Grandma Smith their whole life. And they won't understand what's going on and they'll criticize. Yeah, by the way, you'll notice I'm not making any appeals to Grandma Smith when I'm pointing out that nowhere in the scripture are pastors supposed to receive visions or cast them. Instead, I'm very familiar with what the biblical text regarding teaches regarding the office of pastor, his job, his responsibilities, and uh, in the duties of that office. I'm very familiar with it. So I'm not going to point you to Grandma Smith. I'll point you what the biblical text says. What they don't understand, accept it. Accept it. There will be critics, accept it. Don't be surprised by it. Don't get mad about it. Just realize it's there. The music is too loud. The building doesn't look like a church. The pastor has a past. Did you see the type of people they reach? Okay, number one. Everybody has a past. That's not the issue. The question that needs to be asked regarding Gary Lamb, number one, is what were the steps to restore him to ministry? Were they proper biblical steps to restore him to ministry after his moral failing? Okay, The people I've talked to about this, um, they don't think that's actually um, that the right steps were taken to properly restore him to ministry. And there's a question as to whether or not he should have. Okay. In fact, the, uh, the 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 criticism that comes up that I hear from people regularly is that Gary Lamb kind of self-appointed himself to uh, back into ministry. That's how that went down. So yeah, yeah, Christ has forgiven him. You know, clearly Christ has bled and died for uh, his adultery. 
I, I get that. So that's not the issue. The issue here really, really has to do with what he's doing. He's gone back to his old ways, is now a vision caster, claiming to receive a direct vision from God, organizing people in, in doing the exact same things that he was doing prior to his fall. And the problem is the theology. The problem is the whole premise on which he is operating. It is false and unbiblical. And ultimately, he's going to end up making you know, a similar or worse mistake than he made the first time. Because the reality is this, is that he's not really a stable person. And this is, this is absolutely sad and tragic that he's inculcating this cult culture there at Action Church. Did you see what he said on Facebook the other day? I said the word holy crap on Facebook the other day. Holy crap. Two words, holy and crap. And yet scripture says that the one holding the office of pastor must be above reproach. Gary Lamb isn't, still to this day. And some pastor went on there and told me how God was holy and not crap is not holy. And he was just blasting me. I'm just like sitting there. I'm like, where did this come from? And then. Yeah. And see, the fact that you're completely clueless as to where that's coming from, again, proves you're not biblically qualified to be a pastor. I mean, just today, I mean, somebody pointed out that, you know, a, twi- a tweet that he had sent out asking people for suggestions on uh, what to preach on Easter Sunday. And somebody had tweeted him back and said, you know, preach about Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and the resurrection from the dead to prove that he was God. And Pastor Lamb's response back to that guy was to call him a, well, a jackass. That's what he called him. And and so, I mean, this is, I mean, just to say that it's problematic is, is like ridiculous. I mean, th- Pastors are not to be ones who are prone to fits of anger and rage and, and doing things of that nature. This He's not exemplifying anything at all related to Christ's character, the way, you know, the mercy and forgiveness of God. He's belligerent in a way that is just ridiculous. And, and he's completely clueless as to why he would be receiving criticism from anybody for the outrageous things that he is saying. I mean, he's he's a visionary leader. He's got to, You just need to be happy that he's out there making a difference. Doesn't matter if I'm calling people names and saying these things and stuff like that. Again, this proves he's not biblically qualified to be a pastor. Everybody got sidetracked and started bashing this guy, and it got out of hand. I had to delete the thread because thought y'all were going to kill this guy. I'm thinking if holy crap offends you, man, you would not make it five minutes here on a Sunday. Man, you know what? And this is my favorite one. Do you know what they really believe there? What's so funny is when it comes to what we believe, we're probably about as conservative as you get, belief-wise. I just We are. We're just very conservative. We're just stupid and believe the Bible. <laughs> we're partial to the red letters, the one Jesus said. You know, we don't really, you know. Yeah, you don't get to tell me that you just believe the Bible because you've added stuff to it. You twisted the story of Nehemiah. You've eisegeted it. And if you don't know what that is, you need to look it up. And you are practicing an ecclesiastical model that is nowhere taught in Scripture. It's completely foreign to Scripture. 
You got to accept the opposition. And we've got to learn to respond the way Nehemiah responded to opposition. Nehemiah succeeded in rebuilding the wall in 52 days. And in 52 days, he changed the fate of a city. He did it even though there was critics. And today I want to show you what he did when the critics come. Because you can't stop the critics from coming. They're going to come. The first thing they did is, very simply, they prayed. They prayed. We're going to actually talk more about prayer next week in the first week of our series called Naked Preacher. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk to you next week about some things I struggle. I'm going to tell you. You're going to do a sermon series called Naked Preacher. Oh, yeah. Nothing wrong with that at all. One of the things I struggle with is prayer. I have an ADD prayer life, you know, and I think many of you can relate to that. It's going to be awesome, but they prayed. Look, look how he prayed in Nehemiah 4, verse 4. So the critics have come. Nehemiah, he doesn't go fight with them. He doesn't chase them down. He doesn't respond to them. He just begins to pray. He said, and look how he prays. I love it. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. He says, turn their insults back on their own heads. That's how I'd pray, just being honest. <laughs> Give them over as plunder. I don't even know what plunder is, but I like the word. In a land of captivity. He says, <laughs> Nehemiah says, God, I know you showed me grace. But do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults into the face of the builders. I mean, that's a prayer. I don't know that it's the best prayer necessarily as you get into the New Testament. We'll talk about that next week. But, man, he was just raw and honest. He did not go out and face the critics. He didn't go toe-to-toe with the critics. Oh, by the way. The biggest waste of time is meeting with critics. I spent time after time meeting with critics. If I can just get this guy at lunch and I can explain to him what we're doing. Critics criticize. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to know the truth behind. They don't want to know. Yeah, again, um, that's really weird because it's clear that you're the one who doesn't want to know the truth. If the truth is really on your side. Again, show me where in the Bible that says that pastors are to receive a vision and cast a vision and the job of the church is to get behind the pastor's vision and make it happen. Show me a clear biblical text that shows it, that says that. Your heart behind something. They want to criticize something they don't understand. So Nehemiah knew there's no point in me meeting with them. There's no point in me confronting them. So he just prayed. He realized that I've got to take this to the God of the universe. He saw wisdom from God. He understood. Don't miss this. He understood to stay focused on the vision. You've got to stay focused on God. That's the number one thing critics would do. They'll get you distracted. Nehemiah knew. He said, I've got to go. Now, notice here. You got to stay focused on the vision. Where in the Bible does it teach congregants their jobs to stay focused on the vision? Nehemiah doesn't teach this. That's not what Nehemiah is about. The focus isn't on God in the seeker driven churches, it's on the vision and the leader who received it. Go to God. And I dig how he prayed God, don't forgive their sins, destroy them. God, God, give them plunder 
in the land of captivity. He said, I, I, that kind of prayer worries me. I, I like it because I think it's just an all, it's just an honest prayer. It's just a raw prayer. The Bible used to say this all the time. The Bible says we're to pray for our enemies. Then I always come back and say, the Bible is not very clear on how we're to pray for our enemies. <laughs> you know? Now, here's what I've learned. As I pray for my enemies, normally I start off by saying, God, kill them. <laughs> and after a couple of weeks, God softens my heart because there's power in prayer. As we embark on the revolution, we've got to stay prayed up. If you're not going to God daily in prayer, you're missing out on what God's called you to do. D.L. Moody said, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. You want to see a revolution? You want to see lives changed? Then you go to God and you beg and you ask God to do something amazing. When the critics come up... Good. Then I'm asking everybody listening to this podcast to stop and pray for Gary Lamb. Pray that God would open his eyes to the fact that what he's doing here is not what God's word tells him to do. That God would open his eyes to the fact that this vision he claims that he's received from God is not from God. That he would repent and that he would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That he would stop being a visionary leader. And if he's properly restored and actually has a way to make himself qualified to be a pastor that someday that he would preach sound doctrine, the true gospel, and repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to whomever he comes across, regardless of how they dress or how screwed up their lives are. But that he, that we would, ex- we would see extreme life change in Gary Lamb to the point where he would step down as a visionary leader and confess that the whole model that he's operating from is unbiblical. That should be our prayer. Come along, you don't respond to the critics. Don't ever let me see anybody here responding to critics. We don't have time and it's not worth our effort. Funny thing is, he responded to critics today on Twitter. Weird, huh? Respond to the critics. We pray and we take them over to God. You know the second thing I see them doing? Not only do they pray, they continued plowing. They continued plowing. The critics have come along. They're making fun of them. They're trying to get them to stop. And look what the Bible says in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached its height where the people worked with all their heart. The critics come along and Nehemiah says, we just kept on building. The critics are bashing and Nehemiah says, we just kept on building. The critics are criticizing and Nehemiah said, we just kept on building. The opposition was there and Nehemiah said, we just kept on on building. They just kept on doing what God had called them to do. Bring on the enemy, we're rebuilding the wall. Bring on the criticism, we're rebuilding the wall. Bring on the hate, we're rebuilding the wall. Bring on the threats, we're rebuilding the wall. We're starting a revolution and we do not have time to stop doing what we're doing To answer the questions you're asking. It's a good vision. I like that old YouTube video. Yeah, again, this is inculcating a cult mindset around the visionary leader, Gary Lamb. All over nowadays. Ain't nobody got time for that. We don't have time for criticism. When the opposition comes forward, we need to stay focused. We'll keep doing what we've been doing, even if no one understands it. 
I used to always say the vision or one of the goals of this church, not necessarily the vision, one of the goals of this church is, is I wanted people in this community who didn't even attend this church to be able to say, you know what, I don't necessarily understand what they're doing, but lives are being changed because of it. We keep plowing. We keep... Life change is not is not the uh, measure of whether or not a church is succeeding at the mission that Christ has sent the church on. question is this. Are you making disciples, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded? That requires the pastor to teach only what's in accord with sound doctrine, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to everybody there. That's, that's, a, that's way bigger and far deeper than just life change. I mean, l- let's be honest. Alcoholics Anonymous succeeds at getting life change in people. Um, you know, 12-step programs, they help people experience life change. And yet not everybody who goes to Alcoholics Anonymous or goes to a 12-step program to overcome an addiction um, has been brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Muslims experience life change. People who've been brought to Islam experience life change. That's not the standard. Serving. We keep loving. We keep feeding. We keep clothing. We keep reaching those who don't attend church. We keep doing the music we do and the preaching that we do and the kids area that we do. And we do what we do and we stay laser focused, tunneled vision and we keep plowing on and we don't worry about the criticism because the criticism is going to come. I love, I love this part because the critics don't go away. We were in Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 6, the critics come back and look who they say. When word came to Sam Bass. Now I got I just have to ask the obvious question here. Um, I've been around for a while, okay? Grew up in uh, American evangelicalism, okay? I don't remember just good old ordinary churches that were effective at preaching the gospel and teaching sound doctrine ever having a swarm of critics. Do you remember that? I mean, I, now, granted, I'm, you know, I'm almost 46 years old. And so, you know, I can I can remember back to 1976. I can remember the 80s. I lived them, okay? Um, yeah, I lived the 90s. And before there were seeker-driven churches, I don't remember that, you know, individual congregations, even like ones that were fairly large, having swarms of critics. They didn't. You know, churches pretty much did their job. They taught sound doctrine, proclaimed Christ in him crucified for our sins, called sinners to repentance and faith and trust in Christ to be forgiven. And, um, you know, granted that, 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 you know, out in the culture, there were atheists and people like that who were criticizing the church. And there always will be that. But I don't remember any major churches, you know, drawing for themselves huge oppositions, even in church plants, you know, you know, out, you know, where new churches were being planted in the suburbs. It's not like there were people out there attacking the pastor and stuff like that. That was never a norm. What's the reason why it's a norm with the seeker-driven movement? Why is it that seeker-driven leaders have all of this opposition where historically Christian pastors haven't? That's a good question to ask because the answer has nothing to do with them receiving opposition because they're starting a revolution or anything like that. Um, At least in the past, that was the case. Maybe it's because the seeker-driven leaders have started a real revolution, a real apostasia. That's, by the way, apostasia, where we get the word apostasy, it means rebellion or revolution. 
Maybe it's because what's happened with the seeker-driven movement is that they have an outright, flat-out, organized rebellion and revolution against Christ's church the way he organized it in the beginning, the way it's supposed to be organized biblically. That's the reason why they have a swarm of critics, not because churches in and of themselves somehow attract like lightning rods criticism. And so something to keep in mind. Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall. So the wall has been rebuilt now. And not a gap was left in it, though by that time I had not set the doors and the gates. So he'd rebuilt the wall. He'd not put the doors on the gates yet. So there was still time to get him to stop. Verse 2, Samballot and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Come, let's meet. Meet. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I love this. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times. Yeah, by the way, this is like a standard response I get from seeker-driven leaders. One of the things I don't talk about much is I actually reach out to seeker-driven leaders to let them know I'm critiquing their sermons and things like that, give them an opportunity to respond. I've got a collection of emails from seeker-driven leaders with this exact verse as their response to me. No joke. They sent me the same message. And each time, I gave them the same answer. Come, let us meet. Nehemiah said, I'm doing a good work. Nehemiah said, I'm on the wall working. Why should the work stop for me to come to you? I had a pastor call me when we were doing the warming shelter, and he said, my name's so-and-so, and I pastor such-and-such church. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing good. He goes, he goes, I've heard you guys have some needs down there. I said, yeah, well, I said, well, we're fine. We've got some things that churches have been helping with if you'd like to help. Well, I've heard some things about your church. And he said, I don't listen to rumors. <laughs> but they concern me. I thought, okay, well, that doesn't even make sense. You've heard rumors, you don't listen to rumors, but the rumors you've heard concern you. He said, how about you and I go to lunch today? And you can answer some of these things, and boy, if you answer them, then we'll be able to help. I told him, I said, it's going to be five degrees tonight. I'm at the church getting the church ready. I don't have time to stop doing what we're doing to come answer your questions. Thanks, but no thanks. And, and, and the guy, and, and, I, and I wasn't rude to him, and, I, and maybe the guy very well meant well. I don't know. But here's the deal. The work, we don't have time to stop the work to justify to this guy the room. And the fact of the matter is whatever rumors you heard were probably true. <laughs> I mean, I kind of knew that going in, you know what I mean? And so it's like, you know, what am I going to say? Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, that is true. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? Quit listening to them. Plow on. Keep quit. In, in other words, he just admitted that whatever the rumors are that are flying out around there in Georgia regarding Action Church, that they're not rumors. They're true. Just want to make sure that we've got the record clear on that. Best thing some of y'all could do is stay off 
people send me messages all the time. And what's so funny is, is we're kind of a little small church now. We're out of the loop. And so, like, the, the Christian bloggers don't really blog about me anymore. But they used to blog about me a lot. And so what happens is you guys will go Google my name and find these old articles that are, like, five and seven years old. And you'll get fired up about them. And you'll send them to me. Have you seen this? And I'm like, yeah, that was seven years ago. Who is this guy? I'm like, seven years ago. They don't care about it. We're in the ghetto of Canton. They don't care about us anymore. Yeah, there's still some fake Twitter accounts out there. And I don't know. Quit reading it. You know what the best thing on Facebook and Twitter is? On Twitter, it's called block. Oh, on Facebook, it's called block too. Bam. Just block them. It's so freak. It's, it's the most, remember, I, it's almost, I get addicted to blocking people. I'll addict, I block one. And I'm, I'm going through my list. Who else can I block? And then I won't find anybody that's like worthy of getting blocked. So I'll be like, I don't really know this person. Bam, I'm blocking them. You know, it's, it's awesome. But the problem with critics is, is they wear people down. And it, it begins to wear the people down. Nehemiah 4, verse 7. When sent ballot to buy the Amorites and the people of Ash, I'd heard the repairs of Jerusalem's wall and had gone ahead. And the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. So he's cut himself off, pur- purposely cutting himself off from any negative criticism, despite the fact he's already publicly admitted that many of the rumors that are floating around out there regarding him are true. How is this? How does this meet the biblical qualifications in uh, Titus chapter 1? You know, I think that's the valid question. Titus chapter 1 makes it very clear what the qualifications are for a pastor. Titus chapter 1, I'll start at verse 5. Paul writing to Titus says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, and he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I'm sorry, but what I hear from Gary Lamb here is the exact opposite of this list that is given as the qualifications for a pastor. And the worst part is is that he is proud of the fact that he doesn't meet these qualifications, that his life doesn't exemplify what this list says a pastor must exemplify in his life. That's what I'm hearing from him. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against us. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble, and we cannot rebuild the wall. All our enemies said, before they know it or see us, now they're focused. The people are focused on the enemies, and they're tired all suddenly. Suddenly they focused on the enemies, and they're wore out. They shouldn't have been focused on the enemies. They should have been focused on the work. Or if they knew it or sis, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So Nehemiah had been praying and, and they'd continued to plow, but some of the people started listening to the critics and they were ready to give up. 
ready to give up on what God had called him to do. And I love what Nehemiah did. He just got up. And the first thing he did was he reminded them of their past. He remembered the past. He remembered the past. He, he said, as I look things over, this is Nehemiah talking now, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome. There's going to be critics. Let me tell you how this works. I've been in this game a long, long time. Not a lot of screaming, shouting today. Not a lot of funny stuff today. Not the most entertaining message today, but I want to remind you of some things today. I've been doing this a long time. The bigger it gets, the more critics there'll be. The bigger it gets, the more critics there'll be. And they'll beat you down. And they'll wear you out because it'll be your neighbors who are criticizing. It'll be your family. My own mother. My own mother criticizes. Well, I just don't understand it. So explain to me why the guy who sings has long hair like that. I said because he likes. I don't know. Like, I don't understand what that's a big deal to you for, Mom. I just don't understand it. You know, shut up and ask your opinion. You know, I don't tell her that's my mom. So I just don't talk to her. Christine's like, you called your mom? No, I ain't called my mom. Listen, listen, but remember the past. When they're bashing it, because they don't understand it, just remember the past. There's some of you that are new, let me remind you of some things. This church started with 12, 13 people. We met at the YMCA and got thrown out of the YMCA after a month. We went to the art center and got thrown out of the art center after two months. We moved down here and met in the parking lot for six months. And we grew and we grew and we grew. You go back and you remember that. When we moved down here and we thought, man, it's going to take a couple thousand dollars to redo this building, and it cost $25,000 to redo this building. We didn't have $25,000 to our name, and a $10,000 check came in from someone who didn't even attend our church. And someone else came along and said, well, I can do this and I can do that. And you just remember where God's brought us from. And you remember when there was only about 20 seats in here, and it was horrible, and God continues to add seats. It's always funny when we bring pastors here. They see this building, and they're like, uh. And I'm like, you don't know what it used to be. You just go back, and you remember. You remember this last year when we needed to make improvements to the kids' area and do some advertising and do some different things. I think we had a goal of $10,000 to, to um, raise, and we raised $16,000, and God's done amazing things. And, and, and you just remember that God has blessed We said, man, we want to feed people. We said, how do you feed people? We don't have any money to feed people. Someone came to us, and the door closed since then. But at that time, God came along and said, I can get tractor trailers full of food. He goes, the problem is you have 24 hours notice of when they come. I said, cool, we'll do it. He said, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. Everything that comes off the trucks is frozen, and so you'll need to give it away quickly. And I think we have to do that seven times before the door closed on that. Seven times we gave away 53-foot trailers full of food off the truck, sorted and given away in no time. We became known kind of in the area there for a while as the church who gave stuff away. I had a bug company call me one time. They said, hey, are you the church that gives stuff away? I said, well, people bring us stuff and we give it away. 
And um, they said, what's the weirdest thing you've ever given away? And I said, well, we gave away 13 pallets of Sunny Delight one time. That's kind of weird. I don't know. Just here's Sunny Delight. Someone brought it to us. He said, he said, well, I got five pallets of roach killer. He said, could you give it away? I said, we can try. We gave away roach killer, you know. You just remember where God's brought us from. You, you remember the stories of life change. 63 people went public with their faith last year through baptism. That's amazing in any church. It's amazing. You just remember where God's brought you from. When you feel discouraged, you remember that God's hand has been on this place. I, I think about dumb... I, I, th- I say it all the time, and I know sometimes you guys don't realize because you take it for granted because it's here every week. I say it all the time. I think about when we had no one to lead worship, and there was someone you may know on the right of my wall over there. I don't even know if Facebook still does that, and there was Phil. And Phil was a jerk in the previous life that I knew him. <laughs> I was kind of a jerk. And um, I said, crap, man, we and him, this guy didn't end well. Let me send him a message, and I sent him a message. Hey, would you come sing for us? He, I just read the message the other day, again, because it made me laugh. I'll sing one time, and I do things my way and only my way. I was like, well, we're desperate. Let's bring him in. And we can't get rid of him now. I remember things like that, that God, you couldn't have, God couldn't have brought a better person in the world to fit this church than him. I mean, I, I go back and think about Taylor, and me and Taylor were on the outs from my previous place, and God restored that relationship, and we said, we're starting a new church, and her and Joe were the first ones who said, we're part of what you're doing there. And I think about that, and she runs the whole church now. You just remember the past. Golly. I met with someone this week that's got a, a, a place, and they're talking about, hey, would you come over here and maybe do a service for these people who don't have church? And at first I was like, man, we could never pull this off. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute. God's done amazing things the last couple of years. Of course we can pull it off. You just go back and Nehemiah told these people, he said, don't be afraid of the critics. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome. We serve an awesome God today. We serve a great God today. We serve a God who he, he just says, man, I've got, uh, he's got plans and visions for this place that we can't even grasp. And he's going to do something awesome here. Do not get sidetracked by the critics. And last of all, he kept the purpose before them. He kept the purpose before them. As I looked things over, I stood up and said, the nobles and officials, rest of people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your families. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. He reminded them of the purpose of rebuilding the wall. The wall was where the people, their sons, their daughters, their wives, could live a life the way God intended for them to live, not a life of destitute, not a life of poverty, not a life of destruction like had happened in Jerusalem, but to be a thriving community. He said, when you feel like quitting, you remember the purpose of why we started this in the first place. I want to remind you today when the critics come, and they will come, 
And when the critics beat you up and they will try to beat you up, you just remember the purpose of what we're doing here. We're standing over the pits of hell yanking people out. People who would not come to church, would not darken the doors of the church, are burned out on church, have given up on church, who want nothing to do with church. We're the church for those who don't do church. Yeah, but you're not actually helping them if you're twisting God's word and teaching false doctrine. And it doesn't matter how many things you're giving away. If at the end of the day, they're not hearing the truth and are instead having their loyalty not to Jesus Christ, but to your vision, well, then there's division in your church, the type of division that really in the long run hurts people. In in fact, eternally can have very serious negative ramifications. We continue. It doesn't make us the only right church in town, but it gives us a very unique vision and a very unique calling and what God's called us to do. And God has put the right people in place to fulfill that purpose here. God has uniquely positioned us to do exactly what he wants us to do. Other churches can keep moving out to the outskirts of town where all the big neighborhoods are. We're going to stay in the center of town because this is the city God's called us to. As we've been looking for other buildings, we've had a lot of opportunities. There's been a lot of buildings I've looked at recently, to be real honest with you, that are way outside of where we feel like God called us to be. There's very few buildings right where God's called us to be, and that challenges you in your vision. I even had a pastor tell me this the other day. He said, you could move your church anywhere. He goes, matter of fact, if I was you, he goes, I'd move your church out of town out where the money people are because the money people would still come. And he said, because of all the work you've already done, that's what he said, his exact words. He said, the perception would still be that you're church for the needy, even though you're not anymore. And I said, no, no, that uh-uh, doesn't excite me. So we've been looking at different buildings in this area. We want to be right by the interstate. We have a lot of people who come to this church from all over us because we're right off the interstate. It doesn't make it that far of a drive. We want to be in the older part of town because we feel like that's just where God's called us to be. And here's what I know. God has the perfect building right where he wants us to be. I, I find it funny. I'm sure the landlord doesn't find it funny that he's been trying to get this thrift store to sign a contract here for a month and a half, and every time there's a hitch and there's a glitch, and something holds up, so I'm just waiting for him to say, back out of the deal, because it ain't going to happen. And if it does happen, I hate to pray the guy out of business. What I'm going to do is let him remodel the building. <laughs> I'm going to let them remodel the building, get all the bathrooms up to code and stuff, and then we're just going to send all our bikers over there at night to beat the crap out of them and tell them to go out of business. In the name of Jesus. You say, that's not very pastor. <laughs> Someone said, that's not very pastor. Like, I can't be responsible as a pastor for what the people of the church do. I'm just saying. Let me close out today. Nehemiah 4.50. I love when the Bible just preaches itself verse by verse like that. So I just want to make sure I heard that right. That Was that him giving permission to the people in his church to physically assault people? Yeah, it kind of sounded like a tacit approval of that type of behavior. They, they prayed. They kept plowing. Remembered the past and what God had done. They kept the first for them, and look what happened in verse 15. When, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall 
each to our own work. The critics realized, man, there's nothing I can do, and they just went away. They shut up because the people weren't giving ear to them. You know why critics criticize? Because there's someone who will listen to them. Yeah, actually, in the case of this critic, you know why I, I offer criticism? In the hopes that people's eyes will be open to the truth and they will be set free from false teachers and those who would tyrannize them with visions like this. That's the reason I do it, and that's the reason I don't go away. I don't. I stay at it, knowing that by being tenacious, some will hear and be set free. If you don't listen to them, they won't criticize. God's called us to do something great here. We're leading into the biggest time of the year for churches as we lead up to Easter Sunday. It's spring. Everybody's in church mode. Even those that don't normally go to church will come to church on Easter Sunday. We're gearing up for a huge series in this Naked Preacher series. It's going to be awesome, some of the topics that we cover. Then we're getting ready for what we're going to do on Easter. We haven't decided how we're going to nail that down yet, but I can promise you it's going to be huge. And what's going to happen is the critics are going to come out of the woodwork. Stay focused. Because the revolution's too big to let a critic sidetrack it. Let's pray. And there you go. Yeah. That was supposedly a sermon. And none of it actually was biblical. None of it. The whole text that he used was completely twisted. It doesn't teach what he's trying to teach it, make it say. And it's all about casting vision and the allegiance to the vision and the visionary who got the vision and getting busy to get busy to take on, you know, go and do something amazing and the revolution and stuff like that. No, 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 no. We're not called to a revolution. We're called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching. Every church has the same mission, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And pastors are not visionary leaders according to the Bible, they're servants, they're shepherds who care and tend and feed God's sheep and rightly teach God's word and must, according to God and his word, be above reproach. It's not what we get from Gary Lamb. It's very sad and very tragic. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.